Glad that you are all here with us and uh, had an opportunity to see some of the highlights from our Pack Hope event back in April, where a good number of us served and cared for putting together those packages that are going to refugees throughout the world. And probably soon, if not yet, if they haven't already received those boxes, meals to get them through a month and the many of you who labored in putting them together and experiencing what it meant to be in poverty-like conditions, hopefully that was a, an impacting night for you, an encouraging one to be able to serve in that way, um, and uh, one it was a, a privilege to be able to do together as a church. So thank you for your involvement, engagement in that financially, and then physically, uh, it was a great, great turnout. So thank you. Again, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, we are in a series through Revelation, we began last fall. We will wrap up sometime early July. We have eight more weeks of Revelation with us uh, after today, and I hope that you're encouraged. It gets crazier and more intense uh, as we get going now, and so we're going to be turning our attention to Revelation chapter 17. We're going to read all of it uh, right now, and then we'll sort of work through portions of it as we move through this chapter Uh, But it is a chapter that hopefully will bring encouragement, even as it makes us feel overwhelmed, that it will bring encouragement that there is a way to conquer the conflict that we experience in this world, that we'll be encouraged in that, and that encouragement would help us to hold on all the more. So let's hear God's Word, Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other has not yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, and is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, 
and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. That's a lot. Let's pray. God, we come to a bewildering passage. And it's here in the word. It's for our good and it's to your glory. And so we pray that you would be with us as we try to tackle it. Be with the preaching and the hearing, the receiving and the believing of trusting of this, your word, for our good, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Life is hard and evil is real, and this can be overwhelming sometimes. And not only that, there is a reality to that life is hard and evil is real. There's a reality of that that goes largely unseen, though it's operating above and around our lives even as we go about our lives, aloof to it in the midst of busyness or mundaneness. As we get jostled by reading through Revelation 17, we find a very scary chapter. It reveals what is unseen in very vivid ways, and it should alarm us. It really should put the fear of God in us to read a chapter such as this. This chapter brings out what Paul, the author of the New Testament letter, Ephesians, says in one verse, Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is overwhelming, what we're considering today. You probably don't feel overwhelmed by the reality of it in the midst of your busyness or mundaneness, but it is overwhelming. It is a conflict far greater than we are, and it goes largely unseen, though we probably feel it in some measure. Hopefully, our chapter in Revelation will help us see how we can hold on in the midst of this crazy spiritual conflict. And how we can conquer it in the midst of our holding on. So holding on is important. It's at the heart of revelation. And holding on in a hard world is overwhelming and challenging. And so we need to understand a number of things. And this morning we're going to be going over familiar ground. The Bible often tackles themes in a very repetitive manner. And there's a reason for that. If the Bible repeats itself, we should pay extra attention. And so we are going to be going over ground that we've touched on in our series in Revelation. Just know that as we return to familiar themes, we're doing so in the letter as it's unfolding in escalating ways. So it's getting more intense. Should bring the greater urgency on our hearts 
to hold on to Christ in the midst of this. So holding on in a hard world understands first the spiritual conflict with this world. Our going about holding on to Christ as he holds on to us understands the spiritual conflict with this world. Secondly, holding on in a hard world also understands the sovereignty of God over this world. That even though it's overwhelming conflict, God is more overwhelming. His sovereignty brings to us a tremendous amount of peace. And then thirdly, we'll find that there is sure hope for the redeemed in this world. So we're going to move through this chapter and hopefully be encouraged by these things. First, let's tackle the spiritual conflict with this world. It is a theme that has been heavy in Revelation, and it comes with great intensity here in our chapter. There are two things about our chapter that we should see, the players of the conflict and their strategy. And what we find in the players of the con- in this conflict is first we find the great prostitute who happens to also be called Babylon, a name, a reference we've already tackled in our letter. But look at verses 1 and verses 5, excuse me, verse 1 and verse 5, <clears throat> as we consider this great prostitute. Verse 1, then one, in the, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And then in verse 5, And on her head was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. This Babylon that we've come across already and this great prostitute are one and the same, and it's referring to the man-made, man-centered system of the world. And that man-made, man-centered system of the world is set up as an antagonistic alternative to following God. Okay, so it's a little bit of a mouthful. Probably should have made a slide of that. Sorry. (laughs) It is the man-made, man-centered system of life, system of the world that is set up as an antagonistic alternative. To following God. It's not just an alternative. Hey, here are many things. Choose this. It's an antagonistic alternative. It is decidedly against God and his people. Throughout history, this great prostitute, this Babylon, shows up in all kinds of different ways and flavors and colors and hues. It shows up in all kinds of oppressive ways or alluring ways, it it shows up as that antagonistic alternative. So there's not just this one moment, it's happening throughout history. And it carries with it the features either of alluring people away or crushing people from following God. We'll get more on that in a moment. But this reference to Babylon in Revelation is a reference to Rome. Rome at the time was the city that was representative of the world, if you will. It was this power center of the known world in this day. It had everything to it. But let's, let's first settle that thought with looking at verses 7 and 9. I will tell you the mystery, verse 7, of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Seven heads, that's very important. Looking at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Rome was known as the city on seven hills, and as such, it represented the man-made, man-centered system of worship that was an antagonistic alternative to God, to following him. Rome was sort of a short form of pagan worship, emperor worship, and all the allurements to the pleasures, possessions, and power of this world. It was a short form of that. And in John's day, it was the biggest representation of it. But that has played out throughout history. There have been all kinds of Romes of all kinds of flavors throughout the history of the world set up as an antagonistic alternative. And so John's encouragement in this revelation letter that went to his first readers and hearers is an encouragement in light of their present context. Therefore, it's an encouragement in light of our present context as well, to know that there's operating around us and above us and in the very water in which we swim is a world bent against God and his people. Second player of the conflict that we find here is the beast. We interacted with the beast already, but we come back to the same beast we see in verse 3 and verse 8. Let's consider those words in verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. Then in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit, go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And so first of all, in that verse, verse 8, you see that repetitive statement, who was, is not, and is to come, is set up as an antagonistic alternative to the description of God that we have in the Bible, or in Revelation, who was, who is, and is to come. There's an incompleteness, and an inability to match what God is, it being attached with this expression, who was, who is not, and who is to come. It's an antagonistic alternative. But the beast represents the sort of larger scope of the world bent against God and his people. If the woman represents the city, the beast represents the state, the bigger context of the world in opposition to God and his redeemed. And it's here that we see that the city lures people away from following God and the state crushes people from following God. And that's what we find as the strategy of this spiritual conflict with this world. One is to be lured away with idolatry. To be lured away, to have our hearts lured away from from seeing God as worth it all. Lured away from that. To follow off something else that we want to give what only God can give. Look at verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Looks so good on the outside, doesn't it? Arrayed in purple and scarlet, jewels and pearls, beautiful outside, holding a golden cup. Be pretty amazing. But nothing but stench of filth and death and regret on the inside. 
The nature of idolatry promises life and yet brings death. Promises to give what only God has to give. And because it can't deliver, it only brings death on those that have been sucked into the trap. That's the nature of idolatry. It's shiny, bewildering, bedazzled even. And yet, just like bedazzled genes, should never ever exist. It's very similar to C.S. Lewis's use of Turkish delight in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's delicious, and yet it doesn't satisfy. It causes a longing for more that, that can't quite be met. And it brings crushing, crushing circumstances to Edmund's life. That's the nature of idolatry. As we considered last week, idolatry seeks to capture your heart. Your heart. The seedbed of of your affections and and from which you live. We live out of our hearts. Jesus tells us, out of the heart the mouth speaks. So we, we live out of our hearts. Idolatry wants to capture your heart. Reshape the values of your heart. Therefore, to bring about a very godless manner of living. And what it does to capture your heart is say, check out this Turkish delight. And it has a global scale to its warfare. Look at verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Its reach is global. This is the operating strategy of the world right now. What you and I live in and swim in every single second of every single day is that there is a buffet of idolatry calling you to come and overeat, calling you to come and fill your plate again and again and again. You can't necessarily see it, but you can feel it and you know it. You know its pull on you. It pulls at you from very different and many directions. And your busyness of life or the mundaneness of it distracts you from what's really happening. Your heart being pulled and lured away from God being worth it. That's the scope and the strategy of Babylon, of this great prostitute, is to offer you the pleasures and possessions and power of this world, and yet on the inside is only defeat and death and disappointment. That's one of the strategies at play. The other is when the allurements do not win your heart, then the crushing, killing work of the beast comes. It crushes and kills through persecution. Verse 9, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When God's people don't drink up what the world offers, the world drinks up the blood of those they martyr. If you don't take the bait of idolatry, then the boot of persecution comes crushing down. And either strategy, idolatry or persecution, being lured away or crushed, the world is bent on you bailing on God. Does not care 
how that happens. The goal is for you to bail on God. That's the strategy of the spiritual conflict of this world. There are no days off of this dual-edged strategy. The world doesn't take Sundays off. It's always operating. It's always in play. Always. And as such, we are to be all the more vigilant in encouraging each other with truth and with grace and with gospel, that God is worth it. God has overcome the world through the person and work of Christ, and that all who, who look to Christ through faith will be saved and rescued and strengthened, and God will keep them and see them all the way through to the very end. And all that we have to endure a world that is bent on us bailing on God, all that we have is found in what we have in Christ, what God has provided for us through the gospel. And so if the strategy of the world bent on either luring us away or crushing us away never takes a day off, then why do we always look for ways to take days off? To spiritually nourish our, our hearts, our souls, to gather together with the saints and sing the songs that we need to sing, to pray the prayers that we need to pray, to hear the word that we need to hear, to be in community in the way that we need, because every day the allurements or the crushing strategy is at play. And so we need it. We need each other. We need this, what we're doing right now, this ordinary thing. That's also a little odd. We're all gathered in a room, singing together, praying together, hearing the word together. We desperately need this. It's good for us, even on the days when we're not very good at any of this. It's still good for us. Sorry, worship team. I wasn't saying you. I was including me in that. That's not what I was. But we're human. We're human. We're going to serve in our humanness, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be what we desperately need. To be reminded of God's greatness and his grace and his glory. And as we do that, we are encouraged just as we are in this passage. When we set our gaze upward to the God who is over all things, we are encouraged by the sovereignty of God over this world. As overwhelming as it seems to think through the strategy of the world to either allure us away with idolatry or crush us with persecution, there's something even more compelling in this passage. I hope you saw it. It's God's sovereignty over it all. God is in control. His purposes prevail. While we consider the overwhelming nature of the spiritual conflict with these spiritual enemies seeking to play us, these enemies get overwhelmed by the one who plays them. God turns the world and its system in on itself, and they turn on each other before God turns them over to judgment. This is so fascinating in this chapter. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Revelation chapter 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. I thought they were working together. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Fascinating. 
God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. What amazing subterfuge. I am a sucker for spy or espionage movies. I don't even care. I am, I, I'm all in. And, and the more complicated, the more engrossing, the better. When many layered plans and strategies are working themselves out over the course of the movie, and just when you think the bad guys are about to win, the good guy pulls the one thread and the whole thing unravels. I love that. God here pulls out the thread in verse 17. The man-made, man-centered world unravels. God turns the beast on the, on the great prostitute. He is over everything. He is sovereign. Nothing is outside of his sovereignty. Yes, you should feel overwhelmed by the strategy of the world in its work to bend you against God. It is bigger than you. It is. You don't have the strength and the resource in and of yourself to handle it. You'll crumble and fall. But it's not bigger than God. God is bigger. He is over it. And so when you think the world in its ways seems so big, so intimidating, so overwhelming, think of the sovereignty of God and laugh. He pulls the thread and it all unravels. Amazing. And not only does his purpose prevail, they chiefly prevail in brilliant fashion because the lamb conquers. In the sovereignty of God comes the lamb who conquers. As we've been moving through Revelation, we've had a companion verse along the way that I've just found to be essentially Revelation in, in, in sort of pill form. The whole of Revelation in one little, one little two-sentence uh, verse, and that's John sixteen thirty-three. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's Revelation in short form. There's your Cliff Notes edition. And we see this on display in verse 14 of Revelation 17. They will make war on the Lamb. But guess what? The Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Jesus wins. God is in control and Jesus wins. You may feel like a pawn in this world, someone of insignificance, a who cares nobody, and yet Jesus wins for you, and God calls you chosen and faithful despite what you might feel about yourself in this nefarious world. And not only that, God is doing something right now in the midst of a world operating against him. He's displaying his victory over the world through this crazy, weird thing called the church. The church is the display of God's sovereignty and his grace greater than all the world has for us. He puts it on display. I love what Ephesians 3.10 says about this. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in heavy, heavenly places. He's showing off 
through our redeemed lives that are growing in Christ and helping others come to know his grace and mercy, he's showing off to these nefarious enemies of our souls and enemies of God and his glory. He's showing off saying, you might have all the baits set up and you might come crushing with the boot, but I'm winning and the redeemed are my display of me winning over you. That's the church. That's what you belong to. God's display of victory over the world. You belong to that. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. And from that we see the sure hope of the redeemed in this world. There is spiritual conflict far greater than us. But God's sovereign over it. And because of that we have a sure hope. And we go about clinging to the Lamb. As we've said so many times, and it's okay, our interpretive key for Revelation is played out in this very chapter. The whole key is played out. Life is hard. Evil is real. God is in control. Jesus wins. So hold on. So hold on. We are compelled by this vivid picture to hold on to Christ as he holds on to us. How do we hold on? Well, let's keep in mind the strategy of the spiritual conflict against us. How do we hold on? Well, first we hold on in what we believe. Idolatry is wanting us to believe wrongly about God and believe wrongly about something else to be to us what only God can be. Then you and I, our holding on is that we labor together to hold on in what we believe. The world is throwing all kinds of idolatry at us from all angles, so what we believe is crucial. The, that means the content and character of our church is to be saturated with a growing and compelling Christ-centeredness. That we are all the more explicit about Jesus and his grace and his glory and his mercy and his power. That that's the aroma of our church. That that's the thing that we sing about, pray about, preach about, teach about, talk about, live about that that would be all the more the thing that captures our heads and our hearts. We don't want to just gain information and knowledge. We want to know God through faith in Christ. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Another way that we go about talking about that here is that we want to be a church that goes about treasuring Christ through all of life, through worship, in community, on mission. So we commit to that, we do that, we live that out, so we hold on in what it is that we believe. And we hold on in how we live. We hold on in how we live. The world wants to turn us away from living for God and with God. So it's important that we hold on in how we live. The world offers a buffet or a boot in order to dislodge us from following God and what we believe and how we live. And what's interesting is that the world demands tolerance, but is also strikingly intolerant on anyone who does not take the bait. We're under the pressure to adopt the values and to live in world-approved ways. And so it's very important that we set aside Christ as Lord in our hearts. A very helpful companion to this call to hold on in the way we live is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. Those letters at the back of the New Testament are very important letters, and I think increasingly relevant for us. From Hebrews to Revelation, it's 
talking about what the church looks like at the end of the first century. Church has been around for a number of years, decades. And the pressure of the world around, both in this allurement and in persecution, is increasing. And so these letters give us real good guidance on how to live when pushed to the margins of a culture or a society. And in 1 Peter 3, it gives us a direction of what our living looks like. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Honor Christ and live with hope. It's amazing. Set aside Christ as the most important in your heart and live hope-filled lives. And goes on to say this. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who refile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Essentially, love Jesus. Don't be a jerk. That's how we hold on. Set aside Christ as Lord in our hearts. Honor him in our hearts. Live with the hope that we have. Be eager to explain why we have hope. And don't be a jerk. This is what we see play out in our chapter. The spiritual conflict with this world. The sovereignty of God over the world. And the sure hope of the redeemed in this world. We, you and I, who trust in Christ for salvation, we can live life to the fullest even in a world bent against us. How? I want to close right now with, it's a lengthy prayer, but it's a good one. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1. In light of what we considered in this chapter, in light of what we've been considering in Revelation, this prayer sort of leaps off the page differently than if you were just reading through Ephesians. So keeping Revelation in context, let's close by me reading through this prayer, but may these words be true for your heart and your head and your life now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 to 23. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all and all. Amen.